You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 12. We're going to spend a few moments this morning in our time together really considering what it means to live a committed life to Christ. So Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at verse 1 and 2. So if you're there this morning, and if you're physically able, go ahead and stand with me while we read these opening two verses together, and then we'll pray. Romans 12, picking up in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Father, it is with an eager anticipation, Lord, that we have gathered this morning. It's with an overwhelming desire God, that we want to hear from you. Lord, if there's one voice, God, that we, that we long to hear, if there's one person that we need to see, God, God that's, that's you. you. And so, so God, God, would you come? Would you meet with each one of us? Would you convict our hearts, God, where we need to be convicted? Would you, God, do a deep work within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A cursory look at human history will tell you that at different times and at different seasons that there have been books written by specific people that have helped form and change generations of people. People's minds get a hold of these books and they're used both for good and there are things that are also books that have been written that have been used for evil. Again, that have changed and impacted the lives of many generations of people. Think for a moment of the influence of Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species. Consider the impact that it's had on society and subsequent generations. I mean, without a doubt, it's influenced the world that we live in today. Consider for a moment... Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto and the impact that it had upon Lenin and world leaders and even Hitler and his write, in his writing of Mein Kampf and the impact that had on the lives of millions of Jews that died in concentration camps. Well, in addition to those books that were written, the Bible has also had a tremendous impact, not for evil, but for good. To change and to transform the lives of people, not just for one or two generations, but for nearly 2,000 years. And this morning, the book of Romans used to change a religious current in the 16th century. In fact, it, it can be said that most revivals that have happened in the world, their roots can be traced all the way back to the things that Paul has recorded for us in the book of Romans, the great Protestant Reformation. One of my favorite all-time heroes, I felt like it wouldn't be okay for me to come back and share without at least one Martin Luther quote, right? 
Can I get an amen? Where's our Baptist at? It wouldn't be right. Martin Luther said this in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the purest of all gospels. He had such a high view of it because his own life had been so changed and transformed by it. He said that every Christian should know it word for word by heart and should occupy himself with it every single day. That was the high view that many in ages past have had of the book of Romans. And this morning as we consider this 12th chapter, really just these opening two verses of the 12th chapter, I couldn't help but think about the words that the writer of Hebrews records for us about the power of God's word. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And the power, right, of God's Word. And some of you, your lives have been changed and transformed by it. Some of you have come and understood the Bible and, and been under the te- Phil's teaching and heard the Bible, the simple verse-by-verse teaching. Your life has been changed. I know mine has. And so what does that mean then? True Christian growth and maturity and holiness happens first and foremost as we expose ourselves, as we put ourselves, I got this, this bright light on me, in fact, it's almost blinding, but, but our lives as we sit under the light of God's word, our lives are changed, they're transformed, and that's why we read these things and spend time in them daily, presenting ourselves before God. But, but also note that before Paul does this, before Paul writes these things here in Romans chapter 12, Paul has gone on for 11 chapters to tell the Roman Christians everything that God did for them, right? He does that for 11 chapters. And, and so he's calling them, he's calling us to a level of commitment grounded upon Christ's commitment to you. Right? That's what he's doing here. So if you're taking notes this morning, four simple points. The chapel that I get to preach in about once every four to eight weeks, they give me a 25 to 30 minute window. Um, And so this morning I was greatly relieved uh, knowing that I had a little bit more time than 25 to 30 minutes. But we'll see how I do. Um, so four, four simple points, really. Um, and I'm not going to... We'll, we'll come upon... There they are. They're right there for you. So I'm not going to waste my time or your time reading them to you. So as we consider that first point, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Here in this opening verse, Paul, he gives us the basis of all commitment. The basis of your commitment to Christ is his commitment first to you by the mercies of God. What is Paul referring to? Well, in chapters 1 through 11, he's gone on and on and on to recount all of the ways that God has been merciful to you. And God has been merciful to me. In chapter 1, he reminds us, it's really the theme verse of the book of Romans. Verse 16, he said, it's the power of God's salvation, right? 
It's God's power that allows us to know him, to be saved. It's not my power. It was God who came into this, entered into this broken world to save people and make it possible for you and I to be saved. It's because he has mercy that God has done that. That God has seek, is seeking to make all that is sad become untrue. It's God who does that. In chapter 2, before we were even saved, while we were still under God's wrath, he shows us mercy. Because Paul reminds us in Romans 2 that it's, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. right? Because of his mercy. And then the first part of chapter 3, God is so merciful that he gives us a law. A law to show us just how sinful we are. A law to condemn us and to convict us that we might not look to ourselves and to our own works, but that we might look to Christ. And then the third part of chapter 3, the biggest act of mercy, something that we celebrate when we, every time we partake of communion, is that Jesus came and died in our place because he's so merciful because you and I were pitiful. That's, did you know that I looked up, when I was thinking about mercy, I looked up some of the synonyms for mercy. And one of the most popular is pity. So to show someone mercy is to show someone pity. And because we were pitiful, we needed God to show us mercy. And then in chapter 4, out of his mercy, we're told that we are justified, that we are made right with God. Not because of anything that I've done or anything I deserve. It's simply because of God and our faith in the finished work of Christ. Because he's so merciful. Not only that, we're reconciled to one another. To love and to serve each other. And then in chapter 5, out of his mercy, we who were once enemies of God have now been made Children of God. In chapter 6, out of his mercy, he sets us free from this master that we're all enslaved to called sin. He fills our hearts with his spirit so we no longer have to obey sin. We now submit ourselves to his spirit. Out of his mercy, he does that for you. And has done that for me. In chapter 7, according to his mercy, we find that we now live in a new covenant. Not a covenant based upon me, but a covenant that's based upon Christ. Because of his mercy, again, he's given us his spirit. In chapter 8, all of this according to his mercy, that for those of you and I who have faith in Christ, that we will never, ever, ever be separated from the love and the presence of God. Because of his mercy, he's committed himself to you that way. In chapter 9, out of his mercy, while you and I were vessels of wrath to be destroyed, because of his mercy, we're now his children to be loved and to be cared for and to be tended to. Then in chapter 10, we find out by his mercy, we've been commissioned now to share Jesus Christ with other people. In chapter 11, because of his mercy, someone came and shared the gospel with you. 
maybe a pastor, maybe a friend, maybe a coworker, maybe a family member, because of his mercy, someone came and shared the gospel with you so that you can now be saved. And then later on in chapter 11, even after Israel rejected God, God uses that as an opportunity out of his mercy to save Gentiles like you and I. And one day out of his mercy, he will turn back to those people that have rejected him once again and show them mercy again. I mean, what is this? I mean, it's almost hard to believe, isn't it? When we really begin to think about those first 11 chapters in that way. When Paul is appealing to us by the sweet mercies that God has shown to us. And so what does that mean for you and I now? What is the pervading question that we should be asking ourselves? How should we now respond to God in light of all of those mercies? How should I now live my life because God has done all of this for me? Well, this is where Paul makes the turn into chapter 12. And from here to the rest of the book, Paul says, now this is how you should live in light of all that mercy. In light of everything that God has done for you, this is how you should live. And that brings us to our second point, the character of commitment. And Paul, again, he writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's really only one thing for you and I to do in this verse. One thing. As worship to Jesus and for Jesus, we are to give him everything that we are. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All that I have, all that I am, presented to God, returning unto God what is already his, what he's purchased. Now, this idea of a sacrifice was a very common theme for the Christians in the Roman church. This church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so both of those groups would have been very familiar with this kind of language. But typically, in Near Eastern religions, the sacrifice was given to satisfy the righteous, well, to satisfy an angry deity. Sometimes Paul uses the term of propitiation, And propitiation is to satisfy, to propitiate the anger of this deity that's upset. And certainly the Jews even had those sacrifices that they would offer that were intended to be an atonement for sin. But not only did they have those sacrifices, they also had sacrifices that were given as a praise offering, as a thanksgiving offering. They were, they were given to God to show that God was of absolute worth to them. It was a sacrifice. It was a worship offering. And that's the kind of sacrifice that Paul is really referring to here in this verse when he says for you and I to present ourselves as this offering or this sacrifice unto the Lord. To show God how valuable he is to, you, to us. And notice Paul says that it refers to the sacrifice as being holy 
and being acceptable. Again, most religious systems understand, they understand this language of an offering being acceptable. There were very strict guidelines and stipulations when an offering was brought that it had to meet certain standards. Even in Judaism, these offerings sometimes had to be inspected by the priests to make sure they were without blemish, to make sure it was right. And you and I, we kind of get that, right? If we were going to give God an offering, we're not going to go back to, to, to the back of our goat pen and find our three-legged goat that has one eye, right? Like we're, gonna, we're not going to bypass like all of our favored ones and go find the one that, you know, that walks with the limp and is, has an eye missing, what are, what are we going to do if, if we were going to offer this sacrifice? We we're going to, to find the best one, the favored one, the firstborn, the, the one that's spotless, the one that has no blemish. That's what we're going to offer. Why? Because God is of absolute worth to us. So Paul isn't telling them to go get an offering, is he? What is Paul telling them to do? Someone? To be the offering, right? Paul's not saying, go get, your be- go get your best goat. Paul is saying, you are that offering. To present yourself before God. Because here's the thing, until God, it's our hearts that God is after. God doesn't want any of our stuff until he has our hearts. It's our hearts that he's really after. And here's what's shocking to me is that you and I, because of Jesus, are considered before God to be holy and acceptable. Isn't that amazing? That your life, that my life, as a sacrifice because of Jesus, is considered to be holy and acceptable to God. Because if we're all honest with ourselves, because I know me, I know when I go looking for the three-legged goat with one eye sitting in the back, the runt in the back of the pen, that's me. I am that goat if I know me. And it's shocking to me that God wants me to present myself to him because he's made me holy And because of Jesus, I am acceptable to him. He calls me. He longs for me. And though I am that runt, though I am that three-legged, one-eyed goat, God, because of his mercy, accepts me. Notice we're not told to make ourselves acceptable the two words that Paul really uses to describe it is living, right? I can't make myself alive. Anybody here make themselves alive? No. I can't make myself acceptable to God apart from Jesus. And so God does that for you and for me. And he's done that, everything in chapters 1 through 11. And because that's true, that changes everything, doesn't it? It's a game changer. The very fact that it's not upon me, it's, upon, it's what God has done for me. And so what 
is the one thing that I have to do. Present myself to God. He's made me holy. He's made me acceptable. It's to present myself to him, to give all that I have and all that I am to him, to do what he wants to do. You ever find yourself asking the question, what is God doing in my life? I hope you do. We all should be asking that question. What, God, what are you doing in my life? For some of you who are single, maybe you've been asking the question, God, am I ever going to get married? Or you're asking the question, God, should I marry this person? Does God want me to move to this place? Does God want me to take this job? I mean, those are all questions that we ask ourselves regularly. And those are all great questions that we should be asking. But I would submit to you that all of those questions are secondary questions. They're all secondary. They're great questions, but they're all secondary. The question above all questions is the same for every single one of us, and it's this. Have I first and foremost presented myself to God? My heart, my mind, my body, have I presented it before the Lord? Because I'm going to go out on a limb and speak from my own experience. I know that every time I have submitted or I've presented myself to God, that where I live, where I work, who I marry, all work themselves out, right? We can't confuse primary, secondary, and tertiary issues in our life. The primary will take care of the secondary and the tertiary things that we commonly ask ourselves. And that's really where Paul is going in this letter. God has done everything for you. He's made you holy. He's made you acceptable. Now will you? The one thing we have to do is present ourselves to God. Today, tomorrow, the next day every single day. And as we do that, the will of God unfolds in our life according to his plan and according to his purposes, because I'm no longer trying to do it on my own. I'm no longer caught up in, should I move here? Should I go there? Should I marry this person? Should I divorce this person? Should I do this? Should I do that? God, when we present ourselves to him, takes care of all of those things for us. He moves us. He guides us. Now, what you're saying is, Damien, I I get that, but that's easier said than done, right? Amen? It's just me that feels like that's hard to do? It's easier said than done. Thank you, Gage. That's why God has given us his Holy Spirit. And so he hasn't left us as orphans to do this on our own. He's given us his Spirit to guide us. That's why Paul writes, for all of those who are sons of God are what? Led by his spirit. The presenting before God, being led by the spirit. This is all really one work that God intends to do in our lives. And so don't miss the primary thing in your life. Don't, don't get caught up in secondary things. Don't, don't allow those tertiary issues to dominate your mind. The question we have to ask ourselves every day is, have I presented myself before God? 
Now, notice the last part of that verse. Paul writes, which is your spiritual worship. That word spiritual, interesting translation, depending on what translation you have, they translate it differently. The original term in the Greek is logikos. And logikos means what? It sounds very similar to the English word. Logical. So logical, Gage. (laughs) Which means intelligent or reasonable, which is the way it's translated sometimes. So, So what is Paul saying here? This is the reasonable thing to do. This is the only thing that makes sense. It doesn't make sense for you to get caught up in all these secondary things when the primary, the logical thing to do is to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God every day. And if you're as bad as me every moment of the day, I need the constant reminder to present myself before the Lord regularly. And so what does that look like? Because that's great, right? It's kind of like these nebulous ideas like presenting ourselves like God is up. Here I am. Or like take, use my life, right? What, is, what does it mean to present ourselves before God? Well, Paul gets very, very specific in what that then looks like in these demands, in the form of commands, demands, imperatives, whatever words you like, Paul does this for us. Two things, he says, do not be conformed to this world. So the first command is in the negative. Do not be conformed to this world, but conversely or alternatively in the positive, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so let's take that first thing. Do not be conformed to this world. First in the negative, he says, do not allow the world to conform you to its mold, basically. Do not allow the world make your life look the way it does. Paul says, stop looking to the world and taking your cues from the world in what your relationship is supposed to look like with people. Paul says, stop responding to people or retaliating at people in the same way the world does. See, there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns where Christians behave the way Christians should behave, where Christians treat each other the way Christians should treat each other. By his mercy, God has done all this for you and saved you. And Paul says, now live like it. Live like you're saved. Live like you've been delivered. You're no longer part of the world. Don't let it mold you. Don't let it shape your values. So the first was the negative. Do not be conformed to this world. Second thing Paul phrases, and this is very interesting. It's really a play on words in the original language. But Paul gives an alternative way to live. And he says, instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Notice what Paul does here. Paul uses two different words. Paul doesn't say, um, don't be conformed to these things, but be conformed to these things. He doesn't say that. He says, be transformed. Two totally different words. They sound similar in the English, but they sound nothing alike in the Greek. Conformed means to change something externally, right? To conform it. it. When I think of conforming, I think of when I was a kid and my mom um, would make me some Play-Doh. She would never buy me Play-Doh for some reason. It was always like, oh, I can make that, son. And so she would make this Play-Doh out of like water and flour and cornstarch and, and all kinds of stuff. And it didn't, ha- it was just, it was all the same color. And so it wasn't as fun. But, but there was just something about the smell of it, right? Even, even real Play-Doh, once I had kids and I bought them Play-Doh, there's just something... But the smell of Plato, like it just brings me back. But I, when I think of the word conformed, I think of taking Plato and you kind of form it externally to, into the shape of something, right? Paul uses a very different word, transformed. It means to change something from the inside out. Paul's not talking about just go change yourself on the outside. But Paul is talking about a, a metamorphosis, a metamorphos in, in the Greek. And it's really what happens when a caterpillar turns to a butterfly. Right? You don't just take a bunch of caterpillars and turn them into the shape of a butterfly. That would, be, that would be conforming it. But to transform it is to make it into something entirely different from what it originally was. And that's what Paul is saying here. I love the way he uses these two different words because that's what it means to be saved. It means to be changed from the inside out, not just to change your outward behavior, not just to try to be more spiritual, not just to try to have this appearance of godliness, not just to throw you know, posts up on Facebook or Instagram that look spiritual, but your life looks no different than the world. That's, that's conforming. Transformation is to be changed by God, by the Spirit, to have the Spirit of Christ poured out into your heart, to lead you and to guide you and to change you. That's what Paul is, is telling them to do, because that's what it means to be saved, to be transformed from the inside out. And that's really what it... Our, the process of sanctification, Christian growth and maturity is, right? It's becoming on the outside who we already are on the inside. It's, it's allowing God to make the outside look and to be um, the same as who he's made us on the inside. It's kind of that, that life beginning to put that life of Christ pushing out and showing people what God looks like. And how does that happen, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Paul tells us in verse 2, by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind. When we're saved, God makes us alive. He implants His very presence and power in our hearts. It's the mind, right? It's the mind that we have to win the battle in. 
The battle is in our mind. That's where it either happens for you every day, or that's where it doesn't happen for you every day. It's in that battle of the mind. And the word renewal that Paul uses here refers to complete reconstruction. Complete reconstruction. Not just a renovation of some, something that was existing, but a complete reconstruction. You guys remember the show um, on HGTV about makeovers and extreme makeover? That's what it's called. Kind of left my mind. And often what they would do is they would take something that was, you know, old and dilapidated and needed to be redone. And they would, it's the first thing they would do is they would get a dozer in there, right? And they would just, boom! <laughs> I did that to wake some of you up. Uh, uh, they would completely knock it down, level it, remove it completely. So the plot would remain, the pad would remain, and they would completely rebuild the real estate was the same. They would completely rebuild on that same piece of property. That's a complete reconstruction. Same, same property, same person, but a complete reconstruction of the mind. And that's what God's word does for you and for me. I was talking with a friend the other day and I was just reflecting on how thankful I am for God's word, right? I think about the many ways that God, through his spirit, through his word, has transformed my heart and my mind. There's a lot of work to happen still. Um, I'm not there but I'm so thankful for the transformation that God does in here every single day as I present my mind to his word. And what he does, what God does in our lives through his word is he reconstructs the way that we think. He reconstructs the things that we love and the things that we value most in this life. He changes us. He wipes it clean. We begin to change. Our values change. Our choices change. Our decisions change. The way I respond or the way I make a decision in this setting, uh, you know, years back is different now. Because my mind is being, being reconstructed by God. And when your decisions change, your behavior will change, your lifestyle will change, and your actions will change. And that's how God transforms your life. And finally, the effects of commitment, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, as you allow God to change the way you think and transform your life, you will be able to prove and understand what is the will of God for you. Because your thinking is changing, your decisions, your values are changing. 
and God's will is easier. That idea of proving, you may be able to test, is the same word as prove. You will be able to discern between this and between this what God wants you to do. The light bulb comes on, in a sense. And you'll realize this is where purpose is. This is where true life is found. And the world is desperate. The places you live, the places you work, are desperate for someone to show them what life is really all about. The world is longing for someone to show them what what life in God's kingdom is like. And that is most clearly seen in the lives of God's people whose lives are presented as a living sacrifice to God whose minds are being reconstructed and can discern what is the right, perfect, acceptable will of God. It doesn't mean it's always easy, but we have the resources then to make those decisions that will honor Christ and not just satisfy ourselves. And the problem is too often our lives are like a track house. They look no different from the houses in the neighborhood. And complete reconstruction needs to happen in our lives. And that's what God desires to do in your life. Today and tomorrow, it's what God desires to do in my life. So that when he returns, our lives will be a beacon to others of what God is like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Even as we have, for just a few moments of our week together, reflected on the importance of your word, the importance of reading it and studying it and memorizing it and meditating upon it. God, we are so thankful that you have given it to us. God, so, for so many of us, many times, found it to be a refuge, a place to run when the questions of life don't make sense, and you bring great consolation and comfort through your word. God, I pray for this church that we love dearly, God, that they would continue to be a church that proclaims the truth of your word. God, I thank you for Phil and Rebecca and their family and the way that you've used them here. Thank you for the love that they have for your people and the love that your people have for them. God, may your work, may your kingdom be advanced, and may the gospel be spread. May many in Paris come to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.